0: Well, good morning again. If you would take your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 6. We're going to be there in that text today. And I'm going to be speaking about an important subject which really defines the Christian life. And it's based on really what we've been looking at over the past several chapters. It's what Christ has done for sinners, especially as we see it in relation to the church, that empowers everything that we are and do. But it's vital in this very subject that... Christians have a right view of themselves. In chapter 6, we're going to look at uh, what I would call a sacred self-image. It is the first, uh, I'm going to go through the first 14 verses in reading, and we'll cover what we're able, uh, but there's so much in this text, we'll endeavor to hopefully uh, give you much uh, material that might help you to reflect upon uh, who Christ is and who you are in Christ. We begin here in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him in baptism, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead... that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I don't want to just stop there. This is... The Word of our King, for His kings and queens, for His glory. Amen. A sacred self-image is vital for the Christian life. And I'll um, begin with several anecdotes, if you would, and illustrations of the matter to show and underscore the importance of this topic. I remember early on in the Christian life, um, my father-in-law coming to me, uh, I think we were at dinner at a CC's restaurant. He gave me a card, had a bookmark in it with Second Corinthians five seventeen on it, and it said, "If anyone's in Christ, behold, he's a new creature. The old has passed away, and the new has come." Now that was significant because I was a Christian maybe less than a year or about a year at most, and I was thankful that someone older, especially someone in family whom I respect would point out, this is who you are, Brian. This is who you are now. You're a new creation. And it makes all the difference to be told that, and I believe that's why Paul here especially is telling his readers that. It is very difficult to benefit from preaching of the gospel that is meant to affect and build up the elect of God in the church if you don't know that you are the elect of God in the church. It's also very difficult of a struggle when there are those in the church who are not in the Lord. And by presumption, they believe they're Christians just based upon that they've said they're Christians. And so there's a very important thing that we have to get with this. We have to know what it is to be a Christian. We have to know what it is to be in Christ and how we can be absolutely certain of that. We've been looking at that. Chapter 5 begins the new section, not 6. Chapter 5 has outlined for us how certain our faith is, how our justification is absolutely secure to the point where Paul sees it fit at this point under the direction of the Holy Spirit to begin to deal with this matter of self-image, to deal with, in particularly, the solution dealing with union with Christ. Now, <clears throat> Another matter of illustration is just around the same year or two. I remember a Sunday school teacher, a young man who I respected greatly. And he, I loved to hear his teaching. I loved, I loved it because he had talked about God's grace. And I, as a Christian, loved God's grace. Um, especially early in the Christian life when you find yourself struggling with sin It's the grace of God that keeps you going Um, because were it not for grace and it was based on works, you, you would assess yourself quite differently. You'd be quite depressed and discouraged all the time. So I love to hear the man's teaching. He was a young man, excelled in scriptural studies, and he all of a sudden made a turn and became entranced by what was called the hyper grace movement. I didn't know it was that at the time. But it was the idea of this movement that <clears throat> what you did didn't matter at all. There was kind of this divorce or separation from true Christianity, and uh, or, or should I put it this way, the grace of God as a subject, and the life of living that out. And it was put forward that none of that mattered, the living out part. The grace of God is all that mattered. And therefore, grace reigns and we're free. And, um, you know, it doesn't really matter what we do. You say, well, how would someone believe that? Well, it's a lot trickier than what I'm proposing it to be. It's a real movement and it still exists today. And it it involves our subject because the charge that was brought against Paul, we know it's a charge because back in chapter 3, it says there are those who slanderously charge Paul, him, with the idea that we should just do evil so that good may come. There, there were those slandering Paul's message of the Gospel with that type of language. And he comes back to it here on his terms. He comes back to it under the subject of the rock-solid certainty of our justification. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> when he begins here, he uses a phrase that's used throughout Romans when it deals with controversy usually. What shall we say then? Uh, you'll see it come up over and again. What shall we say? You'll even see it come up um, in the near future in chapter 7 and it'll come back up. What shall we say? The point being is that he's addressing that which is a problem, a crisis, an accusation about what he taught. And so he says, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? There's the problem. There's the the controversy that the charge, the false charge that's being brought against Paul, is that some are saying that the gospel you're preaching basically says it doesn't matter what you do. In fact, you should just go on and sin big. Because God's grace is so super abundant. And it's true, right? It's a half truth. God's grace is super abundant. And you can never out sin God's grace. That's absolutely true. There's more grace in God than there's sin in you. And that's good news. Um, But the accusation is, then that would mean that as a Christian, we should go ahead and sin big. I don't think Luther actually said it, but I've heard people say that Luther have said it concerning this idea that we should just sin big because God's grace is so great. I do know there was controversy over the fact of the matter between Calvin and Luther on the use of the law. Let me define a few terms that are related to the book of Romans. Um, And again, they're, they're open to some dispute but there's some terms that I've read about that I think may help you get your bearings straight when you read through the Bible about God's grace. There is something referred to as the law of faith. Um, and then there's the law of works. And then there's the law of Christ, right? There's three terms. Now, <clears throat> when you're dealing with the law of works, the way that that theologians... Uh, set forth, we should understand that, is that that would be Ten Commandments, okay? Moral law. And that would be, even back to Adam, the moral law. Law of works. In other words, works me, meant to bring about salvation. If you keep the law, salvation. The problem was we couldn't keep the law. Adam represented us, chapter 5 of Romans. Romans. Adam failed and we truly sinned in Adam. But but more importantly, Adam represented who we are, who what we would do. He represented exactly what we would do if we were in the garden. He showed us who we are outside of Christ. So the law of works is <clears throat> is an impossible thing to achieve because. Because. The only one who could keep that law perfectly is Christ. The law of works, therefore, is that law in which shows the standard whereby, apart from Christ, we would be under that law and condemned by that law. Under that law and condemned by it. the law of works. Moral law representing the Ten Commandments previously in the garden. Second, you have... The law, not only of works, but the law of faith, which is referred to. The law of faith is, again, theological underpinnings here from controversies in history. I'm just delivering to you what I think might help you. The law of faith is going to speak towards God's, not covenant of works, but covenant of grace. That's the covenant that's worked out progressively over time that culminates in the New Testament. Whereby, when it says at the end of verse 14, Christians, you're not under law, you're not under the covenant of works, you're under the covenant of grace. Or, you're not under the law of works, but you're under a law of faith. You're under grace. You're no longer under a law to condemn you. In Christ, there's no condemnation. There never will be any condemnation. If you're in Christ, you're under grace. And therefore, being under grace, there's no condemnation for you. In other words, you're not going to stand before God and be judged and condemned for anything. Any sin that you ever did, ever will do. You're not going to be condemned because you're not under the condemning law anymore. You're under the grace of God. The grace of God doesn't condemn. So, then there's the law of Christ. Again, these terms are up for debate, but I I just felt they might be of help to you. So, when you see the law of Christ, it's not mentioned often, but theologians would set forth that the law of Christ would be the Ten Commandments, just like in the law of works. But now... It's not the Ten Commandments have changed. It's that your status has changed and you're no longer under the law. But it doesn't mean the law is cast away. It means the law now is a guide to help you know how to please the Lord. The law still remains. The law still exists for you to to fulfill in your life, but it's not a condemning law. It's a law that guides us that we can know what pleases God. There's a clear standard And the Christian is to live in accordance with that, is to live in obedience to that as it is interpreted and applied by Jesus. So. So with that said, you get an idea here, right? The idea of verse one in chapter six of the law can very well go for the first two. And you could say there was a law of works, Ten Commandments. We were under. We were delivered out from it. We're under grace now, so it doesn't matter what we do. But you're forgetting the law of Christ. The law remains a standard for the Christian life, not as a condemning thing, but as that which would guide us so that we would want to please the Lord. Um, Well, the wanting to please the Lord is something we'll get to. It is a standard, so we know what it is to please the Lord. Okay. Now, I have a lot of <clears throat> a lot of stories to share with you today. Um, there's the idea in our day, as it was then, of Christian perfectionism or perfectionism in general, and that is that that people will find themselves quite depressed when they don't meet the standard. Oftentimes, it's their standard. It's not God's standard. And, um, and so it leads to a lot of guilt and a lot of depression and a lot of suicide. There's <clears throat> several things I think of when I, when I think of this idea of perfectionism. And it deals with this text because... Um, well, I don't need to tell you yet. It deals with this text... As we will see, but the first thing is, I noticed there's something that's very popularized even coming out today again, which was called Stoicism. Stoicism actually is something in which uh, is mentioned in Acts. It it occurs in Galio, if you remember his advice. It was kind of this um, uh, somewhat of a smug approach to dealing with Paul's situation uh, where he really didn't deal with his situation. In Acts 18. Um, and Stoicism and Stoics today, and they're alive and well, especially in military ethics. That's why I mention it as well. Um, Stoics today would deny that they're, they're seeking perfection. They're just saying, do your best. And um, Stoicism was invented um, <clears throat> or, or it became a school by a man named Zeno who immigrated to Athens in the late 4th century BC. So this is an old philosophy as to how, how to prepare yourself to deal with the tough times in life, right? It's the stuff that showed up in World War II in England where they said, be calm, carry on. <clears throat> now again, they would deny they're perfectionistic at all. They would say that's absolutely the opposite of what we teach. But I see that it actually is what they teach because they have an ideal, they have a perfection. Here's how the man's perfect. Don't don't uh, don't get yourself uptight about all this. Thing. Do your best. And um, here's um, here's an example to help you understand. A heroic American fighter pilot was shot down named John James Stockdale. He was made a prisoner of war. He undergoes brutal conditions in the Vietnam War until the very end of the war. And he wrote about how he psychologically survived those conditions, recalling a Stoic named Epictetus. And it's in, uh, he's from AD 50 to 135, so much later than the. Stoicism continues to grow, continues to be strengthened. And he learned this from none other than his studies at Stanford in the United States. Now, <clears throat> what he recalls, he recalls. from the Stoic handbook he's taught at American universities. He said things like this. Men are not disturbed by things, but by the view they take of them. Here's another one. Don't be concerned with things which are beyond your power. Here's another. Demand not that events should happen as you wish, but wish them to happen and you will go on well. That sounds a lot like what some people say is Christianity, the way they view things. It has nothing to do with Christ. It has to do with basically how you're going to get along, how you can keep your mind psychologically, how to not be worried about things beyond your own power. Stoicism is said to prepare its adherents for tough times, to give them perspective, and to put things in context. It's interesting that this Epictetus is one who was a Greek free man who actually served in Nero's court. Stoicism, again, is something in which we find show up in the writer called Seneca, who is read to this very day. Even quoted by Puritans. I was reading uh, Thomas Brooks this week, and he quotes Seneca. So it finds its way into Christian writing that I love and respect. Seneca the Younger is the one we're talking about as far as the Stoic. He was Galileo's brother from Acts 18. He tutored Emperor Nero. Emperor Nero's good years were tutored by a Stoic. Now, the reason, again, we're speaking about Stoicism, it's an ideal. It says, here's how you can be in a sense perfect. The Bible also commands you would be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. John Wesley is claimed to have um, or is is reported to have taught Christian perfectionism. I think he got a bad rap on that, but that's that's up for debate as well. But I'm concerned about the fact that a lot of things that sound very much like Stoicism find their way in the Christian thinking about the new man, about the self-image, how we're to look at ourselves, how we're to get along, how do we deal with tough times. And what we're not saying today from the text, what we're not saying, and what Paul's not saying, is that you're simply getting on based on some imaginary thing, based upon what you can't control. You're getting on because of one thing only, and that's because you're in Christ Jesus. There's a reality of who you are. We're not talking about a non-reality. We're not talking about you tricking your mind in order to be able to sustain yourself through difficult times. And I think it's a topic of the day. In military philosophy, it shows up in substitute for Christian humility and valor. It pervades the lives of those who have the stiff upper lip. Again, Stoics would deny this. I walked through Barnes & Noble uh, the other day And off the shelves, there's tons of books that are on Stoicism. There's Stoic handbooks. This is alive and well. And it is a competing philosophy to make people feel positive and better about themselves and to get through the tough times. It's a false teaching. The sacred self-image you need as a Christian is not going to come from Stoicism. It's not going to come from learning to be calm and carry on. It's not going to come from any of their philosophies. It's going to have to come from something that's rock solid, certain. It's going to be able to stand up at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we don't want to take it on as a stoic, do we? We don't want to take it on as something that's imagined and not real. Something in which we just learn how to psychologically cope. We want something that's actually of substance. Well, perfectionism <clears throat> took on another form called the victorious Christian life. There was kind of—it's also called the higher life movement. In other words, there's there's the ordinary Christians, and then there are the Christians that are really living for God. There's these two tiers in Christianity. And <clears throat> this movement, of course, was um, was something in which spoke of a second blessing. A second experience of grace, right? And, um, and early in my Christian walk, I, I was faced with that as well. It was while I was pastoring a first church. It wasn't right when I was saved, but sooner or later I ran into this idea. Sinclair Ferguson said this movement also um, lined up with the Keswick movement based on a convention. I almost brought him to the point, uh, if I remember speaking right on it, don't want to quote him, but just almost suicidal. And it was John Owen, reading John Owen, a mortification of sin and sanctification that really saved his life. So this higher life, this kind of split between here's the ordinary Christian, here's the ones really living for the Lord. It was uh, it rose from a, a guy named W.E. Boardman, 1810 to 1886, and Hannah Wittall Smith with her husband, Robert Pursall Smith, both of whom had roots, surprisingly, in the Quaker movement. And the view may be summarized in Woodall Smith who said, Surrender and trust is positively all that man can do. Not by us, but by Him. We do not do anything, but He does it. So here, this movement says... You don't do anything. Whatever's gonna be done, he does he'll do it. Well, where do you think? In Quakerism, that's exactly what I'm told their meetings are. You sit around, and until someone feels moved by the spirit, and they arise up, speak a word, speak instruction, so forth. So you can see that being brought over now into this new movement, and the same type of language. Well, Wittall and her husband fell away from the faith. There's your fruit. I had a man in the Pentecostal holiness movement um, that was, I considered a brother, go out and evangelize and witness with him. And it was the same kind of deal. And before long, there's a falling away. The man I spoke about that taught about the hyper grace fell away. We're not interested in giving you something that'll that not last and make where you'll fall away. A lot of people have walked in the church doors and claimed to be Christians. We're talking about helping people know what it is to become a Christian and to live and last as one. Certainty. Something that will last you through eternity. We're dealing with people's souls here. These teachings are destructive to people's lives. Let me let me just pause and say that there is no second tier of Christianity. You're, you're either a Christian and that's it, or nothing else. All the Christians are at the same level of Christianity. There's no like higher life. Look. There's also something related to this called the carnal Christian. Know, you might have heard of this, where it was spoken about there's the carnal Christian. The Christian is not living for God. He's living carnally according to the flesh. And then there's the real Christian. But what the Bible calls that is a non-Christian. There is not a carnal Christian. Someone who does not obey the Lord. Doesn't want to obey the Lord. Doesn't struggle with sin. If someone's in that condition, they're not Christian. That's what Romans is going to Set forth here in chapter 6. The carnal Christian comes up in 7. That's where they get it from. In Paul's struggle. They interpret Paul's struggle there in chapter 7 as being in a different spiritual state than chapter 8. So the the whole thing comes down to is how do we deal with sin? How do we deal? How do we deal with the issue of when we sin? How do we deal with the law? How do we deal with God's how do we How do we get back up when we fall? How do we look at others when they're struggling with sin in the church? What is it to be a Christian? What does it take to become a Christian? And in chapter 6, that's what we find as the rock-solid teaching to make clarity of all the false teachings out there. And to hopefully help you keep your minds set upon the right thing. Notice that the first exhortation in all of Romans that we've ever read comes in verse 11. Six chapters and Paul has not told you to do anything. Which shows you how the doctrine is so vital. Real doctrine unites, right? Bad doctrine unites bad people. Good doctrine unites good people. But doctrine unites. Certainly, yes, it divides because if you have good doctrine, you have certain people coming to that and you have bad doctrine, you have others going to that. But everybody has a doctrine. It's kind of like in, in America, right? It's, there is a, uh, they talk about church and state being separated. Um, well, you can't separate those really, to be honest with you. I know that's a, a Baptist taboo to say that, but you never really can separate the two. The state will always have a church. It's just what church will it be? What religion will it be? They've got a religion. The question is what religion isn't. And and are you on on the side of that? You'll find out, right, before long, what their religion is. Well, you can't separate something called justification and sanctification. You can't do it. You can't have a justified Christian and then have some justified and sanctified Christians. You have Christians. And justification and sanctification go together. You can't ever divorce them. You can't separate them. Don't separate what God's put together. You must distinguish them because if you don't distinguish them, you can get errors like you see in Rome. You can see Roman Catholicism. They mix them together. They make sanctification confused with justification. We're not talking about that. But we are talking about you cannot separate justification and sanctification. The Christian has both. That's what Paul says in verse 1. He says this, What shall we say then? Are we... That's the emphasis. Are we, we who have died to sin, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He answers the question. The query is this, by no means. In other words, certainly not. In other words, King James puts it, God forbid. He says, such thinking to divide justification from sanctification is an unthinkable thing in the Christian life. It is something forbidden by the Lord, forbidden by the Christian. And then he says, how can we, who's we? We who died to sin still live in it. How can we who have been bought and redeemed and saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. How can we go and do that? He's saying that is an unthinkable thing. You cannot divide up being a justified believer, which we saw in chapter 5, and being one who's going to go on simply wanting to displease God. If you're a Christian, the, the change that has happened deep in your heart is you can never, ever, ever again have the attitude to wake up and want to displease the Lord again. I think it's fair to say that, right? It's fair to say if your heart is changed, you're not ever getting up and saying, you know, I, I want to find every way I can to displease the Lord today. Or any way that you can. I, I really searched my heart this week and asked God to search my heart. And I continue to ask. But I can't find... And I, I've asked this you know, in conversation, but I cannot find where if you have become a Christian... That you can ever think along the lines of, I want to displease God. It's a great evidence that if your heart wants to please the Lord, that God's changed you. When you get to Romans chapter 7, that's what Paul's talking about. He says, when he sins, he says, I'm doing the things I don't want to do. So we're not saying that you don't sin. It, and we're not saying that you don't find pleasure in sin. We're saying, though, that if you're a Christian, you can't ever want to displease God. It's an impossibility. If your Christianity that's professed is nothing more than surface, and deep down in your heart, you actually want to displease God if you could. then that's not Christianity. You're not a Christian. That bad news that bad news is not meant to discourage you from becoming one. It says we're not going to get anywhere we 're not going to get anywhere if united in you is both the declaration of righteousness and the desire for righteousness because you 're a new creature. Something's defunct if that's not there. <clears throat> I want to be clear too this passage is used a lot of times by Baptists to promote a doctrine of baptism. I'm going to do all I can in my might to not make it about baptism. I care about baptism. We're a Baptist church. We believe that there's no warrant at all to baptize people if they don't profess Christ. There's nothing in the Bible to tell us to do otherwise. But I think we will miss something if we make the text about baptism. Baptism is an illustration here of what he's talking about. He moves into in verse 2 or verse 3 after he's made this argument he's dealt with a problem he says how can we who died to sin go on living in it it's impossible to separate justification from sanctification there's the statement there's the doctrine you can't do it and that justification sanctification is verified in the fact that we who died to sin that means we have died to our own will and want and desire to want to sin we don't want to displease God ever. We do displease God. We do sin. And there's grace for that. But we don't ever want to. And we're not going to be those who go on basically saying, let's go sin so grace could abound. That is unthinkable for the Christian. Because a new man, a new creature, their heart can't want that anymore. Period. That's what defines if you're new. It doesn't mean practically that you're perfect. But it means positionally you are. Not on the basis of who, what you've done or what you do, but on the basis of who, whose you are, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's going to get at. But before he gets there, he says this. Do you not know? Which I'm told that phrase, and I looked up the Greek on it. It, it's, it could be said more strongly. Are you ignorant of this? That's the way Paul said it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? And this is why I don't want to make it about water baptism. Though I do think it gives you an argument for why we should baptize people by immersion who believe it does give that argument, but it can't be just about that because this is not talking about this is not talking about uh, a certain part of Christians, this is not talking about certain Christians, this is talking about every Christian, and there are some Christians that aren't baptized yet. There are some Christians who have been baptized in water, but, but they shouldn't be ignorant. What is baptism? And he's showing that we were baptized, we were baptized into Christ Jesus. We're baptized into his death. That's, for, that's true for every Christian. at the moment you put your faith in Christ alone for salvation, that you have been baptized into. Christ Jesus into his death. And it says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. You don't want to say it's water baptism because if everybody that I put through the water in here automatically hocus pocus becomes Christians, then we should just go and fill this thing up and start bringing people and putting them in the water. That would be an easy solution to society's problems today. We'd be a happier people. Let's get everybody in there. We know that's not what does it. Water doesn't regenerate people. The Gospel changes people. The Spirit of God blows where He wishes. And you hear the sound of it. right? But you don't control that. When someone is made a Christian, the Spirit of God has baptized them into Christ. They have died with Christ. They've been buried with Him. Burial signifies they're really dead. You maybe have read some of these stories. True stories. I'm told they're true. I don't know what to believe today, but supposedly, I mean, there's some people that wake up at the morgue and they're still alive. And I'm thinking, who's their family? Man, they should have done, you know, poked it, prodded it, put a pin in it. I don't know. Everybody's you know, worst fear, right? Well, if you're buried, if somebody's going to bury you, that means you're really dead. You're really dead if you're buried. That's why when you're talking about how shall we, we who died to sin, who've been, who've been buried with Christ, we truly died. The, the old self, the old man died. And how can we who died to the sin there, how can we go on living in it? We can't. We died to it. So, and of course again, reminder that sin... Isn't just the thing you do, it's the thing you desire. That's been a big problem among the whole idea of that people can have desires like that for wrong things and say, well, it's not sin until I do it. No, it's sin the moment it's conceived in your heart. It's sin. But you can't want to have a life and a mind and thoughts like that. You got, as a Christian, there's a war that begins right away that's folk your your who you really are is now a man or woman who hates sin and wants to please God and doesn't want to displease God so you've been baptized into his death we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death and here's the purpose in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father we too might walk in the newness of life. So there you have the the whole purpose. He's saying can't divide justification from sanctification. Argument made. Here's the first. Here's the illustration. The argumentation, if you would. Are you ignorant? Surely you're not ignorant that Christians united with Christ are then baptized into His death, buried with Him, raised with Him, for the whole purpose, to walk new. To walk in the newness of life. That's the result that always should be the case. You now have a people who want to please God. Who before in their old their old man, who they were, wanted to displease God. Now they're wanting to be pleasers of God. They have died. The old man has died. He's been crucified with Christ. And now, what comes out of the grave? The new man. The new person comes out. And chapter 6, verse 5 says, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, here He says, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Now there's the main verse of the text. It's saying, this is certain, if you have been united in this Death like his. Dying to sin. He died to sin. He wasn't a sinner. But he died to sin. He went to the grave. No longer was sin dominating over him. On the cross it was. Sin was dominating on him. He was being crucified for sins. He went to the grave. He was buried. Truly dead. And then when he rose up. He no longer. He's no longer in the garden. With Great sweat drops like blood, bearing the iniquities of humanity. Sin is no longer has anything on him, nothing over him. He is now arise from the grave, as in 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 body glorified in a body that can never sin and never die. He is no longer under sin. He is now alive, and. It's not saying that all that's exactly true for us right this moment it's saying that if we've been united to him though in a death like his like there's the analogy it's like his not exactly we didn't die for sins but we died to sin and if we are if we are if we have died to sin in a likeness of how Christ was crucified for sin then we will be united as well in a resurrection like His. Now, we didn't go and die for sins, and we didn't go into a grave and come out physically and defeat death and hell and Satan and all that. We didn't do that, but we have a resurrection like His. When we become a believer, we have died to sin by the power of the Spirit, and we have arose, He says, to live a new life. That's a certain fact for the Christian. Verse 5 then has explanation. 5a, dealing with death, is explained in verses 6 and 7. 5b, dealing with the resurrection or the new Christian life, is dealt with in 8 through 10. So let's look at 6 through 7. It explains it. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, this is entirely about Christ. This is not talking about you. This is talking about Christ so you understand that you're in Christ. Now, it says here we know something you need to know. Stop being ignorant. You you may have been ignorant of the idea that justification and sanctification cannot be separated. Now you're not. It says we know now that our old self which could be translated old man, was crucified. Now, there's another, another term, the body of sin. The body of sin is the indwelling sin that Paul experiences in chapter 7. It's the behavior of the old man which must be put off. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, it talks about, um, in one case, Putting off the old man, but it's not talking about re-crucifying the old man. It's not talking about um, digging the old man up. It's not talking, you don't have an old man walking around with you. I mean, I don't know, unless you're, I don't know, married to an old man or you got your old man as a father around you, you might be, or you are an old man. But we're talking about figuratively speaking. I'm not picking on the old man. I'm, I'm on my way there. But the, the thing is, is you don't have who you were. If you were to say to an old man, um, this illustration I borrow from Lloyd-Jones, if you were to say to an old man, stop being a baby. When you're saying that, you're saying stop acting like a baby because they're not babies. Right? They're men. They're older men. They should act like that. Not like a baby. Here he's saying, as Christians, stop acting this and this way. Stop acting like the old man. You're not the old man. You're the new man. When you came out of the grave, you didn't come out with two men. You came out with one. Otherwise, you'd be a schizophrenic Christian. You don't, you don't go on. And there are many commentators and many people that I've read and, and that, uh, that uh, especially Lloyd, Lloyd-Jones was so informative in this. Lloyd-Jones would indicate this idea is that there are so many people who have gone and taught this idea Almost where you have the Christian um, having to take the old man, crucify the old man and put him, dig a hole and put him back in the ground. That's not the aim of the Christian life. The old man is to be reckoned, imputed, accounted as dead. He's gone. He's died. Who you were died, was buried. No longer to be brought up again. Any talk and language of putting off, Is putting off the old behavior. The body of sin. I think he refers to it later as the body of death. It's indwelling sin. Um, Something that helped me great in my own struggle with sin was um, I had, I don't recommend the book necessarily, but I had this book called Be Transformed. It was a Christian counseling book. I was struggling with sin. I needed to understand God's grace better. But I remember in that book that there was this whole talk about the self-image of the Christian. And the idea was, there is a sense in which you are, by definition, by definition, you are not characterized as this old man anymore. You're not this person anymore. You're new. You're a new person. Completely new. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I need it to go deeper with that and understand that. In order to not fall for the false teachings that go into uh, what we've talked about before, it was really easy to struggle and begin to doubt your salvation, a lack assurance to really struggle in Christian life. Really can't be a lot of help to anybody if you're there. So you really got to nail this down. And um, so you are—you are the new man. You have died, just like Christ has died. And therefore, it speaks that your old self is crucified with Him in order that the body of sin will be brought to nothing. So now, the body of sin, if you drop down to verses 14, it talks about instrument. Verse 13 and 14. Do not present your members as instruments. That same word means weapons or armor. What he's saying back up in the text, he's saying... That you died to, your old self was crucified in order that the body of sin, that is, the sinful behaviors, the indwelling sin, is conquered. It's so that you would conquer the sin. You would now have weapons of righteousness to conquer the sin. But the old man has died. The old man is is buried. The old man is is not with you anymore. You're the new man. That's who you are. And you are to be a weapon against all sin. All the body of sin. The whole body of it. All of it. Wherever sin is, you're made to conquer it. And it's it's a battle. Because he says, for the one, and I'm saying Christ, who has died, has been set free from sin. This verse becomes confusing because... Some would say interpreted about themselves. He's not talking about us at all yet. He doesn't talk about us till verse eleven. He's talking about Christ. And some people have translated out the word just by looking up a lexicon saying that they're justified. That word where it says if we, the one who has died to sin, the one who has died has been set free or justified from sin. The reason we translate it set free, that's the right translation is because we're not talking about justification in context. We're talking about the fact that when, you, when Christ died to sin the way He did, and he, rose, he, he died to sin, He set free from it, right? Dead people don't sin. Dead people don't sin. So remember, go back up to verse 1 and 2, right? You died to sin. Dead people don't sin, so you have to be able to interpret. What does he mean by sin? He means, he means that you don't, you don't have a desire anymore to to displease God in any way at all. You're new, brand new. You're one new man, not two. You don't have two people fighting within you. In order to win the contest, you're one man fighting against indwelling sin that remains with you until you physically die. So there is no promise that you're not going to have sin. The promise is, is you're not going to be satisfied in living a sinful life. It is an impossibility for a Christian. Okay, that explains the death of sin. You've died to sin and you're free from sin's dominion. You're no longer under it. You're no longer under condemnation. You can't be. Why? You're with Christ now. You're in Christ now. You are united to Him in that way. But also, if you are then united, Paul says, with Him in His death, the good news is, not only did you die to sin, but you also, with His resurrection, rose in this resurrection to live a new life. And so he says in verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, first exhortation in the whole book that we've read. The first time Paul's saying to do anything. And he's not even saying to do anything. He's saying to think differently. He says so in light of the fact that you are united. in other words this chapter this chapter is nothing about baptism. this chapter is not even about sanctification, it is about that you are in union with Christ and being in union with Christ, therefore life changes everywhere because you're in Christ Jesus. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin. Now, this is called sacred accounting because it's, it's not a reality in practice in your life at this point, right? He's saying you have to consider something to be the truth based on the reality that you are in Christ. It's not your righteousness. It's, it's not what you've done. It's everything that's been done to you. Because of Christ. Not because of you. You don't get up and say, well, I've had a good week. I've done really good. Now I can account that, hey, I've checked off more good than bad. Now I can account that I am dead to sin mostly. The only way you could ever count yourself dead to sin is if you're in Christ, the one who died to sin and for sin and rose. The only way you could... The only way you could count yourself this way is if someone actually did that work and that you're in the one who did that work for you so that it is an actual reality, not just positive thinking, not just stoicism. But the gospel's reality now has defined your status and who you are, Christian. So consider now... In light of this Gospel, now, in light of what Christ has done, realize, in Christ, you have died to sin. That's what has happened. So account that. Consider that. Do the divine accounting. The, the sacred accounting. But not only that, in your ledger spiritually, not only consider yourselves dead to sin, this is where most commentators just stop right there. But the whole push that Paul's making the whole argument he's made is to help you see it's not just having died to sin in Christ, it's being made now alive to God in Christ Jesus. Notice, in Christ Jesus is the favorite phrase of Paul all through his letters. He's, he's absolutely in love and in a trance with this idea of being in union with Christ. Christ died. You died with Him. Christ rose. You rose with Him. Your identity is Who you are really and truly is based on who Christ is because you are united to him. So you have to now renew your mind and you have to consider yourselves being in Christ, dead to sin and alive to God. In other words, now it's your entire aim to benefit from the blessings he gives the access He's provided to pray, and the ability whereby before you could not not sin. Now, you have the ability to choose not to sin. You have been set free. Sin no longer is the ruler of your life because what Christ has done and because you are in Him Your self-image, therefore, is entirely based on the gospel. It's based on what he did. Your job, the only thing he has commanded you to do in six chapters with the authority of the apostles and the teaching in which the Christian church has imbibed and attested to is the truth. The only thing he's saying at this point to do has nothing to do with your hands, has nothing to do with your feet, has nothing to do with you going out and doing something or anything different. It has to do with your mind. And you have to consider you died to sin. You rose to live a life to God. Why? Because you're united to Christ who lived, who died, who was buried, who rose and conquered death, sin, and Satan. You're in Him. That's your status. That's who you are. And until you understand who you are in Christ, then talk of sanctification and doing anything is, is a waste of conversation. It will be nothing more than a journey in Stoicism. It will be nothing more than a journey of a victorious Christian life. You'll begin segregating the congregation to the point where you have those that are obedient and those are not. You see, the congregation needs to all know they are in Christ And they are now in their identity identified completely with what He has done. And He has died for sin. And you died to sin. And He rose rose for our justification. And you have been raised so as to live for Christ. You're completely united to Jesus Christ as one man or one woman that's in Christ Jesus now fighting for against, not merely to fight against and fail, but ultimately the promise is you will conquer. Let me go to verse 15. It says, for sin, here's a promise. This is a covenant promise. May use it tonight again for benediction. Sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Since you are not under the law. You're not under the covenant of works. You're under grace. Sin cannot condemn you anymore because you died to it. And the promise is that sin will not rule your life. You now have been made alive as a new man so that you will rule over sin. That is the victory promised to every Christian. Everybody who has been incorporated into Christ, whether they've been through the water or not. It's true for everybody who is a child of God. Get that. Consider it. See the power of God's work happen in your life. Settle it today. may have come under conviction in the moments that I'm preaching, you might realize your heart isn't changed. And I'll close with the illustration of how Spurgeon was converted before we go to the supper. I'll ask you just to listen patiently because the reality is there are people that could be on a church roll that aren't Christians. And... We don't want that. I've already dealt with the other topic. That is, there could be people that aren't on a church roll and aren't baptized that are Christians. But let's deal with the latter. Here's the testimony, if I could find it here, of what Spurgeon said. I had a friend actually send send me this so I could get an accurate account here. He says, I do love as best I can to preach the doctrines of grace and then to close it up by preaching simple faith. Ah, my dear brethren, what years some of us have had to pass through before we understood this truth. For five years, my young heart was wrung with sorrow of the deepest kind. I know that I went to every place I could for five years with an earnest desire that any, any man ever had to find a way of salvation. How attentive I was. I listened. I longed to hear how I could be saved. And one Sunday I heard that I, what was called a practical sermon. Much about what God's people ought to do. And I felt I could do nothing. I felt I could do nothing. I wanted to know, first of all, how I could be saved. Not what must I do. And the next Sunday I went again. And the sermon was on the precious doctrine of Election. And there was nothing for a trembling sinner who wanted to know his title to these things. An experimental sermon was preached full of of deep truths. Here the poor child wanted to put his foot and was told how to swim. But he could not get to the stream at all. The law cut my soul in pieces. And though doubtless it produced some good effect, but I wanted to know the plan. I do not think for five years I heard the plan of salvation unfolded. I could not blame the brethren I heard, but at the same time I thought they tantalized me. For I had gone up to God's house to hear about the one thing needful, but I shall never forget entering that little chapel where there was a poor local preacher, a man without learning and ability, and he came into the pulpit and he read the text Look unto me and be ye saved, the ends of the, be all ye to the ends of the earth. He was not wise enough to preach anything but Christ. He had not learning enough to run away from his text. He was a, such a poor simpleton that he was obliged to to stick to the simple gospel. Would that there were more simpletons of that sort. I well remember how very simple he was, yet poor thing he was in great earnestness. He told us, whosoever should look to the cross of Christ should be saved. My soul looked to Jesus, and then for the first time I knew what was meant by believing on Him. And in that hour my spirit knew the joy of the redeemed. I could have leaped from my seat And sung with joy unspeakable. I am forgiven. I am forgiven. I am forgiven. Trembling sinner, look to Jesus, and thou art saved. Dost thou say, my sins are many? His atonement is wondrous. Dost thou cry, my heart is hard? Jesus can soften it. Do you say, alas, I am so unworthy? Jesus loves the unworthy. Do you say, I am so vile? It is the vile he came to save. Down with you, man. Down, down with yourself and up with Christ. Now turn thine eye thither, see him. He suffers, he bleeds, he dies, he is buried, he rises again, he ascends on high. Trust him and you are safe. Give up all other trusts, rely on him and you will pass from death unto life. This is the sure sign, the certain evidence of the Spirit's indwelling, of the Father's election of the son's redemption when the spirit is brought simply and solely to rest and trust in the shortest account of Spurgeon's conversion is this I looked on him he looked on me and we were one forever let's stand together for prayer